Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. John Lennon was a musical genius and one of the most beloved cultural figures of the 20th century. His songs inspired dreamers to imagine. His search for the truth gave power to the people. But some thought he dreamed too much. Others thought he was too powerful. So he was followed, he was threatened, he was declared a danger to the United States. And in 1980, he was assassinated. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Jim Steele with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 009-08-0491. Case subject is Lennon, John Winston Ono. This information pertains to a period ending November 1974. Interview subject is John, Sir Elton Hercules. Interview number 1-12-819-74. Recall number 1, December 30th, 1980. At first, I was quite intimidated by John because I knew he was razor sharp and could be quite abrasive. But that side of him never came out around me. In fact, John and I got on like a house on fire. We had the same sense of humor. I found him very kind, very funny. I don't know why we clicked, we just did. Our relationship was a bit of a whirlwind. We saw each other a lot over a very shortened period of time and then when we didn't see each other much anymore, our love for each other simply endured. So when he died, I refused to believe it at first. It was so violent. I just lost Mark Bolan and Keith Moon and now John. Murdered for absolutely no reason. It was simply unbelievable. I just landed in Australia for a tall woman, we're told. We got off the plane and suddenly there were these news reporters shoving microphones and cameras in my face asking me how I felt. Bloody hell, how do you think I felt? I was devastated. I was also angry. John once told me when Jim Croce died that you sell more records when you're dead than when you're alive. <laughs> really sick, this world. This world pays good money for tragedy. The wallets come out to get a good look at the blood on the tracks. Six. John Lennon and Elton John. Everyone said that John Lennon wasn't like the other Beatles. For years I had to take everyone at their word because I didn't meet John personally until 1973. And of course I learned straight away that everyone was right. John was not like the others. John wasn't like anyone else, really. I was quite intimidated by John. I learned this the moment I walked into Tony King's office at Capitol Records in Hollywood. Tony King was Apple Records' general manager for the United States, and he'd just set up his office in that legendary building that looks like a stack of records. John was in town to shoot promotional videos for his upcoming album Mind Games, and he and Tony were tossing around some ideas behind closed doors. 
Nothing prepared me for what I was about to see when I opened the office door and I walked inside. Tony King, dressed in full drag as Queen Elizabeth II, dancing wildly with John. It was simply unbelievable. There was no music playing. John may have been humming a tune as he stunned Tony in that huge regal dress, but all I remember is the laughing. Ladies and gentlemen, Her Royal Highness, the Queen. You know when you meet someone for the first time and realise that they're a kindred spirit? That you just know that the two of you are destined for something special, something shared? I had that instant connection with John when I met him. John and I got on like a house on fire. And yes, I realised he was one of the most famous people in the world at that time. He always had been and he always will be. And I also realised that my opportunity to meet him like that in such a private moment that no one else in the world ever saw the reason I had that chance was because I had begun my own ascent on the charts that year. Daniel, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road were all hits in 73. And before you know it, I'm witnessing this incredible moment in this tiny office at the Capitol building. John rarely let his guard down, that's famously noted. Especially in front of the public or people he didn't know. But for the moment we shook hands, his guard was non-existent. I don't know why we clicked. He felt like the rock and roll world was progressing beyond where the Beatles had left it a few years before, and he was feeling left behind. He was beginning to feel out of touch, frustratingly out of touch. And this was early as 1973. There was all this androgyny happening in rock and roll at the time. He didn't get it. It's just rock and roll with lipstick on, he dismissively told Bowie, I got glam. In addition to Bowie as Ziggy Stardust, there was Mark Bolan in T-Rex, and Mick Jagger was continuing to blur lines of sexuality, and me, of course. Perhaps that's one of the reasons John wanted to meet me. He felt like he was losing his hedge, he was, he was becoming uncool. He was razor sharp. He didn't know how to be like Bolan or Bowie or Jagger. I don't know, maybe he thought he'd glean some insight or learn by osmosis or something by being around me. Because I did what I wanted. And John did what he wanted. But the difference was that I didn't care what I looked like. And John cared far too much. Now, I've heard the same stories you've heard about John's supposed homophobic comments, his jokes, the ones from the past that he made at the expense of people like his former manager, Brian Epstein. Quite abrasive. But I don't know anything about that. I never saw anything like that, just as I never saw the rock-bottom, depressed, self-destructive time bomb that everyone else talks about during this period. John's lost weekend away from Yoko. I had two fish named John and Yoko, did you know that? Before I ever got famous. Anyway, I digress. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't self-destructive. Was he going through a rough patch? Absolutely. Did he know the light was somewhere at the end of the tunnel? Of course he did. But the narratives of people like Harry Nielsen and Keith Moon only tell one side of the story. Oh sure, I had some wild times with John. My experience wasn't unique in that way. But our wild times weren't sad and pitiful. They were exhilarating and they were funny. Same sense of humor. We hid from Andy Warhol in minor hotel room, the Sherry Netherland on Fifth Avenue in New York. It was just the two of us, me and John, along with a lot of cocaine. Look, John's excessive drinking and, and drug use didn't end when he came back to New York. 
We had just about as much coke as you'd expect two major pop stars to have in the mid-70s. The amount of coke we did then, well, it was always too much. But it felt like we never had enough. We rolled up dirty dollar bills and snorted. Line after line, Jesus, the rush. It's like a firework on your forehead. Lucky help. In the hotel room, we talked about collaborating while we did lines. John was making a new album at the record plant in New York, and he wanted me to come play on it. Now that was a thrill. To be asked to play on a record by a Beatle. The Beatle who was not like the other Beatles. We were talking about this collaboration when there was a knock at the door of my hotel room. We both froze. We were quite a sight, I'm sure. Sitting there on the couch, high, paranoid, wondering if we were hearing things, not making a move or a sound. Our noses were probably covered in dust. Uh, John spoke first. Did you hear something, he whispered. At least I thought it was a whisper. And then more knocking at the door. We heard a voice out in the hallway. Boys, are you in there? I, I tiptoed over to the door and stuck my eye up to the peephole. Glasses, white hair, camera dangling around his neck, and it was Andy. I turned around and tiptoed back to John. I told him it was Andy Warhol with a camera. Unbelievable. Andy knocked again. I raised my shoulders at John and gave him the universal sign for, what should we do? John's eyes went wide. He violently shook his head side to side, and he was right. The blood side of him never came out. We were up to our eyeballs in cocaine. If we let Andrew Warhol carry a camera into that room at that moment, who knows how many pictures he would have taken? And who knows who would have seen those pictures? So he kept doing lines in silence. Every once in a while, Andy would knock again. I know you boys are in there. We'd stifle a laugh. Same sense of humour. Trying not to chuckle while powder was rocketing up our noses. Like a house on fire. And we kept doing that until the knocking stopped and Nancy Warhol went away. Because there are some things that are meant to be private. There are some moments that the world will never be allowed to see. People still call it the most famous bet in the history of rock and roll. So while I'm sure you've heard about it, it bears repeating. We finished the track for John's new album, Walls and Bridges, the one he wanted me to play on. I played piano and sang with him. It was called Whatever Gets You Through the Night. It was a simple phrase that John and I had picked up watching TV late at night. John loved to watch TV. People say that TV rocks your brains out. Well, John Lennon, one of the eminent geniuses of our time watched a lot of TV. Microphones and camera. So you be the judge there. He was watching TV late one night and stumbled upon some televangelist. And he said that phrase right to the camera, to his audience. Whatever gets you through the night, you do what you have to do. Very sick this world. So we tracked the song at the record plant, and I loved the song so much. It had so much energy and felt so alive in a way that John's original music hadn't felt in some time. I loved it so much that I told John it was going to be a number one hit. 
Oh, fuck off, John said. <laughs> John hadn't had a naval one in the US since the Beatles. Imagine got close, but he felt like he was no longer a number one artist. And with everything going on with him in America, the immigration stuff, the political stuff, he felt like a guy who really wanted to be at the party, even though everyone at the party wanted him to leave. I mean, there were many Americans who still hadn't gotten over that bigger-than-Jesus nonsense. Meanwhile, Paul, George and Ringo all had number ones on their own. This world pays good money. So I know that the topic of number ones made John very bitter. But I could hear it. I knew the song was going to be huge. And so I made him a bet right then and there before we even left the studio. I bet John that if the song went to number one on the charts, then he would agree to perform with me live on stage at my 1974 Thanksgiving show at Madison Square Garden. And he agreed because he was convinced that I would lose that bet. I refuse to believe it. If he had known that the song was going to go all the way to the top, he probably wouldn't have taken the bet. Remember, the Beatles had quit performing live in 1966. John had played a handful of live shows since then. You could count them on one hand. It had been two years since he last played live. When the single came out in the fall of uh, 1974, it started climbing the charts. Fast. And it kept going. September, October, November. That's when John started paying attention and started to sweat. Why was he sweating? Because he had no intention of appearing on stage. Maybe ever again. And then the song hit number one, November 16th, 1974, just 12 days before my show at Madison Square Garden. John, of course, was a man of his word. Showed up that night, November 28th. Very kind. He told me he had one caveat. He didn't want Yoko there. Even though John was living back in New York and his lost weekend was over, the two of them were still a ways off from reconciling. And he was so nervous about performing live. I think the thought of Yoko coming there made him even more nervous. He just couldn't handle it all. So I said, sure, Yoko won't be there. Like I could fucking control what Yoko did or didn't do. She knew that John had requested that she not show up, and so she made a purely Yoko move. She showed up anyway. She made her presence known, not by coming backstage to wish John a good show, she kept her distance. But she did send a gardenia backstage to John. At this point, I was thinking, oh my God, he's going to back out. How do you think, Hoffel? He was already a nervous wreck going into this thing, and now Yoko and the gardenia is much too much, you know? I took the stage with my band and opened the show with Funeral for a Friend and Love Lives Bleeding. The sold-out crowd of 20,000 people were on their feet and singing to every chorus. The place was electric. The noise was deafening. Meanwhile, John was puking his guts out backstage. Bloody hell. Headaches, nausea, vomiting, more headaches, more nausea, more vomiting. I don't know if he was self-medicating with anything, but if he was, it wasn't helping. He was pale. His shirt collar was wet. My band kept rolling. Take me to the pilot. Benny and the Jets. Burn down the mission. We were about nine or ten songs into our set when I decided it was time to bring out John. 
I couldn't save him for an encore surprise. I was worried if I didn't just pull the trigger on it sooner rather than later, he'd get cold feet for real and disappear. For absolutely no reason. I looked over to the side of the stage where John was standing, out of sight, looking like he was about to throw up or bolt, or maybe both. I gave John a wink and a nod, and then looked out on the crowd and spoke into the microphone. It's our great privilege, and your great privilege, to see and hear Mr. John Lennon. John walked onto the stage wearing dark sunglasses, a black shirt, black suit, with Yoko's white gardenia stuck through the buttonhole of his jacket. Now let me tell you, I have been in front of some of the biggest crowds at some of the biggest shows, and I have... I have never heard an audience react like that. They roared. They screamed. This world pays good money. I could only imagine it was a bit like experiencing the original Beatlemania, you know? The house on fire. Once the crowd settled a bit, we launched into whatever gets you through the night. The very song that had made this whole thing possible. And then we followed that up with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and I saw her standing there. John had successfully blown the cobwebs out. He was razor sharp. So he came back out with us during the encore. He and Bernie Torben played tambourines on the bitch's back. It was a transcendent moment. Absolutely beautiful. No one knew it at the time, but that would be the last time John would ever play a concert like that again. 1974. Six years later, he was gone, and my Madison Square Garden show was his swan song. Perhaps even more incredible, however, is what happened immediately after the show. John and Yoko reconciled. Eleven months later, Sean was born, and I was asked to be Sean's godfather. And this is exactly why I say that the day I first met John Lennon in Tony King's office at the Capitol, I knew it was something truly unique, something special. I knew great things were going to come from our relationship. I believe I was put in John's life at that precise moment to make all those things happen. I don't know why we clicked. Perhaps I was a talisman. You just did. A good luck friend. Because soon after all those things happened, I didn't see John much anymore. And that's when things changed. That's when things got really dark. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Do you know where Roman Polanski filmed Rosemary's Baby? The Dakota. The one and same Dakota where John and Yoko lived. Now, maybe it's just me, but I couldn't live in a place like that. Quite intimidating. Not only was it a location for a creepy movie, but it looked creepy enough and in real life to warrant its use in a creepy movie. And then all the stuff about Robert Ryan's wife, who died there. Yoko suspected that maybe the ghost of this woman didn't appreciate her and John living there, and this ghost was doing things to make them feel unwanted. Very really sick, this world. Yoko even saw a psychic about whatever was going on at the Dakota. A tarot card reader. 
Ironic, isn't it? Given that John famously sang he didn't believe in tarot. Anyway, the tarot reader didn't necessarily cure the Dakota of its creepiness, but he told something to Yoko, very disturbing. He said, your husband sleeps in blood. I'm telling you all of this because there was something very strange going on amongst the periphery of John's life. A lot of it couldn't be explained. A lot of it was probably incidental or coincidental. A lot of it I didn't really think about until later. For example, after the show at Madison Square Garden, some of us went to the Pierre Hotel on East 61st Street for a drink. It was me and John Reed, who was both my manager and my lover at the time, John and Yoko, and Tony King. It was late. It was a Thursday night, Thanksgiving night. Yuri Geller showed up at our table at some point. Do you know Yuri Geller? The mind reader, illusionist. He was there, bending silver air that was laid out on the tables, the usual, floating in and out of conversations, gravitating to those who obviously didn't know his shtick and were therefore most liable to drop their jaws to the floor when Yuri read their mind or bent a fork backwards with his own mind. It, uh, Unbelievable. He started reading minds, which is always quite entertaining because of the looks unsuspecting people make when they realize they need to quickly figure out a way to hide all the dirty things they're thinking at that very moment, and then subsequently realize that there is literally no way to hide your thoughts from a person who can read your mind. If you can actually read minds. Simply unbelievable. In fact, I'm not sure what I trust or what I believe about Yuri. But that night at the Pierre, Yuri and John started talking. John had recently given an interview to, well, to himself in a way. Uh, this was in Interview Magazine, which was Andy Warhol's magazine. The interview was with John Lennon and conducted by Dr. Winston O. Boogie, which people may or may not have realized at the time was really the debauched alias John had gone under for quite some time. In the interview, John claimed that he saw a UFO flying around New York City from the window of his apartment. I refused to believe it at first. The issue of Interview had just come out that month in November 74, and Yuri was very interested in talking to John more about UFOs. He was a big believer in the existence of aliens, all that, so the two of them began talking at the corner of the table. Yuri made John feel comfortable by telling him that he believed John's story that he himself had seen UFOs or even photographed UFOs. John became so comfortable, it turns out, that Yuri says John told him even more. John said that one night he was lying in bed at the Dakota. He was alone. A bright light slowly lit up the outline of the bedroom door, which was closed. The light was so bright, the door appeared to be glowing itself. John got himself out of bed, walked over to the door and opened it. And there, silhouetted against this blinding white light, were four figures. They weren't people. They were beings, otherworldly. They reached out for his hands and his legs and guided him forward through the apartment. Only they weren't in the apartment anymore. They were... They were walking down this path of bright light that played scenes from his life in a series of small screens to his left, his right, above him and below him. He watched his entire life in a flash, 
from Liverpool to London to New York and beyond. The figures gave something to him, but John didn't see what it was. Then they guided him back to the bedroom. When they left, John realized there was something heavy in his hands. He opened up and looked down, and in his palms was a ball of metal in the shape and size of an egg. Did this actually happen? I can't confirm or deny. I haven't talked with Yuri in years, and this is something I heard second or third or fourth hand from that evening. Not that I was in a sober state on that evening or any evening around that time to remember anything correctly or coherently. Have you ever seen a UFO? An otherworldly figure in your house that shows your entire life on playback? John and I never talked about UFOs. In fact, I thought the interview magazine was John taking the piss and pretending to be a believer. Very funny. Because, as we know, he didn't believe in much besides himself and Yoko and Sean and the people who were meaningful to him. But what if there were other things he believed? Would you believe that? What if we thought we knew everything about John Lennon? But in reality, we didn't know him at all. It wasn't until he got the cuckoo clock home that he realized it wasn't actually a cuckoo clock after all. So what would one call it? A cuckoo clock? Pun intended, of course, because instead of a wooden cuckoo springing forth at the top of every hour, clock produced a wooden penis. A big one. Elton John found the clock hysterical, and it made him think of the one person who shared his same sense of humor. It would make the perfect gift. John and Yoko's apartment at the Dakota, cooperative building at the northwest corner of 72nd Street and Central Park West in Manhattan's Upper West Side, was full of trinkets from the couple's travels. Guitars, antique couches, a Wurlitzer jukebox, priceless artwork. Elton figured that the clock would fit right in with John and Yoko's bohemian bric-a-brac style. Elton included a card with the gifted clock that reveled in the brand of humor that he and John shared. Imagine six apartments. It isn't hard to do. One is full of fur coats, another's full of shoes. Years later, Elton John stood inside the Dakota building in the middle of John and Yoko's apartment and saw the cheeky clock displayed amongst other fanciful collectibles. The clock brought back memories, good memories. He needed the good memories because these days, it seemed like one bad memory was the only memory that hung around. It was the early 1980s and John Lennon had been dead for a few years. In the six years between the fateful Madison Square Garden show and his assassination, John had seen Elton only a handful of times. Elton was godfather to John and Yoko's son, Sean, but while Elton was busy making records and touring while John was busy not being busy. In September of 1980, Elton played a show in Central Park, half a million people, his largest crowd to date. He played Imagine in John's honor and hoped that John was sitting on his roof deck on the edge of Central Park 
and could hear his song wafting through the warm September air. Later that night, John and Yoko reconnected with Elton at a post-gig party. Little did Elton know it would be the last time he would ever see John alive. Just two months later, John was gunned down outside the Dakota. And now, Elton John stood inside the Dakota. It was 1982? Probably. Elton had stopped keeping track. His steady diet of vodka martinis and coke helped blur days into weeks and weeks into years. Yoko Ono had asked him to come over to the Dakota to see her. She had tapes. Tapes of music that John had been working on before he was shot. The tapes were unfinished. She needed someone to finish them. She wanted Elton to finish them. But Elton couldn't do it. He didn't even want to hear them. Didn't want the temptation. Elton John didn't want to be the one who fucked up the legacy of John Lennon. The guy who couldn't make a decent meal out of some leftovers. Elton wrote music to Bernie Topin's words. That's what he knew. In fact, the duo wrote the song Empty Garden about John's murder, one part eulogy to their departed friend, one part condemnation of the murderer. It's one of the standout tracks on Elton's most overlooked Jump Up album from 1982. But what Yoko was asking now, this ask was too big, too far outside Elton's comfort zone. So Elton turned Yoko down. Yoko finished the tapes on her own with the help of producer Jack Douglas and the posthumous John and Yoko album Milk and Honey was released in January of 1984. But Jack Douglas didn't see his name in the liner notes. Yoko had left it out on purpose. Because Yoko was embroiled in a court case that same year when Jack Douglas sued her to the tune of $3.5 million. That was the amount Douglas claimed he was owed for unpaid royalties on both Milk and Honey and Double Fantasy the record John released right before his death. Yoko claimed the contract was fraudulent. The jury sided with Douglas and ordered Yoko to pay him more than $2.5 million in back royalties. The case was settled just months after Milk and Honey had been released. And as they say, all press is good press. Though not as critically successful as Double Fantasy, Milk and Honey went to number three on the UK charts and number 11 on the US charts where it also went gold. Milk and Honey didn't radically alter anyone's perception of John's latter musical years. Serviceable rock songs like I'm Steppin' Out and Nobody Told Me would have fit in just fine on Double Fantasy. It wasn't a career reinvention. It didn't flip the script or offer a new perspective on the person everyone thought they knew. No one knew that Elton John had almost made his own mark on the songs and thus no one knew what said mark would have sounded like, not even Elton John. Reinvention was years in the rear view for John Lennon. Reinvention happened right before the birth of Sean, right before John won his fight to remain in the United States. And it could only have happened in New York City. It happened in 1975. That was John Lennon's last gasp as a creative revolutionary, before Elton John and the rest of the world lost sight of him. In 1975, John made a last-minute decision to join a recording session which would put him unexpectedly in the nexus of New York City's avant-garde and at the forefront of New York City's pop scene. That same session elevated the American profile of another British rock star seeking to make another of his many own reinventions. And it happened amidst more chaos. Drugs, death, and disorder were constants, along with the unexpected, the unexplained. If you look back on that year and that time, you can still see the residue of what happened, what was lost, what was won. 
what's gone forever and what remains. It's all still there, hidden deep within the blood on the tracks. All right, everybody, thanks for listening to Blood on the Tracks. If you like what you hear, be sure to find and follow Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this season two of Blood on the Tracks, we'll be releasing 10 episodes on the incredible life of John Lennon, with a new episode every Thursday. You can also binge all 10 episodes of season one on the insane story of the notorious record producer Phil Spector. Right now, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. This episode was mixed by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This episode featured Rob Kendrick as Elton John. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you want to chat about this show or hear more about the other shows we're making at Double Elvis, tap in on Instagram at Double Elvis, on Twitter at Double Elvis FM, and now on Twitch where we're streaming three days a week at twitch.tv slash Double Elvis Podcasts. And finally, be sure to check out Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland, or if you have an Echo device, just say, Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. Rock and roll. Oh, dang it.